quick explanation why there's no verse 4 in your, uh, in your bulletin or in most of the modern uh, translations of the Bible. Um, several of the older translations have verse 4 in it because they're based on one major translation in the history of the West, the King James Version. The King James Version uses a manuscript, an older text, that is pretty recent comparatively to the texts we have now, the older versions of the Bible, the copies we have. And all of those older ones, or the majority of those older ones, do not have verse 4 in it. What we, re- we think, and most scholars believe, is that that verse 4 was in the margin notes and eventually got copied into the manuscript that the King James Version was translated into. So that's why we put it down below in your, in your scripture today of what it says. And it's just an explanation of what that pooling water was all about. I'm going to take you through the next part of this sermon, much like I did the children. Read a little and then talk a little. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath and it's not lawful lawful for you to take up your bed to carry your mat. Now to be clear, one of the Ten Commandments is to keep the Sabbath. This is in the top ten of the way of life for God's people, right? Along with, you know, don't lie, don't murder, don't commit adultery, stop longing for everybody else's stuff. It's a big deal. And the Jews have been practicing this since Moses' time, and if that doesn't mean anything to you, it's a couple thousand years before we're here in Jesus, with Jesus. But over the years, the, the religious leaders created 39 rules for how to not work on the Sabbath. It is in a a kind of devotional book, um, maybe a discipleship training book called the Mishnah. The 39th rule of the Mishnah about working on the Sabbath was about carrying stuff. What you could, how long, all that kind of stuff. And that's what they're going after this guy for. It was a lot of work to keep from working on the Sabbath. So verse 11, the healed man now answers them. The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. So the the healed man now knows he's in kind of trouble. And so he kind of just passes the buck on to Jesus. And, you know, the guy just healed him. So he's just like, I'm going to do what he says. No, you know, that's what happened. But the man also has to be kind of shocked, like that this is part of now the story. You see what's happening, that the man wasn't worried about the 39th rule of the Mishnah of carrying things. He'd been healed. But the religious folks don't celebrate, they scrutinize the minutia of the Mishnah. And the proper response to divine healing Y'all, is always celebration, not interrogation, even if you don't understand it or the rules of the engagement that God brought to bring it about. But the religious folks start interrogating who this Jesus is through this guy. They ask him, verse 12, who's the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? I really, there's a couple parts of the story I really love, and this is one of them. 
It says, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was because Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. So that man that has just been healed goes, I don't know. I don't know who he is. It, it seems like to me that he's saying something like, y'all are missing the forest for the trees here, y'all. Like you, you, after the dude healed me, I was going to do whatever he asked me to do. And you're now, now worried about prosecuting me or him against the law? But I'm here to tell you that dude ducked out. He left. He wasn't worried about the things that you're worried about, and frankly, neither am I. Isn't it sad? Even to this day, religious folk can miss Jesus because they're worried about some minutia of the law. And then the scene changes. Jesus, it says, found him in the temple. Now remember what's happened. Jesus is scooted out of the crowd after the healing. He didn't want to make a spectacle of it all. He wanted to show one man who needed healing that he had come not just for his healing, but being healing to the world. That's why he meets him in the temple, the most important spot for all of Israel. Jesus didn't even care if the guy knew his name when he healed him. He just went to go see him afterward. So Jesus' next encounter is in the temple, the very center of Israel's religious life, the place where Israel would experience God's mercy and his glory, his holiness and his grace. And Jesus' response to him is so peculiar that thousands of pages of ink have been spilled over how he responds. And I read probably 300 of those thousands of pages. He said to him, Jesus said to the healed man, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse happened to you. Now, first things first. Jesus is not always the easiest conversation partner in all of Scripture. Many times, he never answers the questions or he goes, what seems like, look, a squirrel. He tells a story in response to a question that is somehow adjacent to an answer to that question. It's just kind of, how, I want you to think about what's happened thus far in the recorded conversation with this man. First, do you want to be healed? Second, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Third, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. That's all we got. I mean, that's not really cocktail party conversation going on right there, right? It's a little bit awkward. But you can read this wrongly, and so many of our fellow brothers and sisters have, and they begin to misinterpret it. There's some deceived parts of the body of Christ, of the church, that, that believes that all sickness, all ailments, all infirmities, all estheneo, lack of strength, is from personal sin. This is not only a wicked lie from hell. 
it ignores the rest of the scriptures. Jesus, just in a couple chapters, like a two-minute read from here, says that some of our ailments are, have nothing to do with anybody individ, anybody's individual sins. They have to do with God showing his power amid your weakness and bringing himself glory in your healing. Yes, sometimes personal sin creates ailment. Think of cancer from smoking or psoriasis of the liver, some forms of diabetes, or like driving too fast and getting in a car wreck. Like, yes, but there is no way in any scriptural sense that draws a causal or direct relationship between personal sin and someone's estheneo, lack of strength. None. Some of the most wicked human beings in the world are alive and well, and some of the most beautiful, holy, wonderful people you've ever met have passed away. Okay? So what is Jesus saying when he says, and it says, um, something worse may happen to you. Let me just tell you honestly, reading several of the hundred pages of the possibilities, I don't know in specific. We could have a half hour conversation and I'll give you the options, but it didn't seem appropriate for this time. But I do know in general what he's saying. In general, what he's saying is, mind you, they're in the temple, by the way, the place of mercy and glory. Jesus is saying, your physical healing is not the most important thing. The most important thing is what I have come to do, not just for you with this foretaste of healing, but to heal all broken things. I've come for the forgiveness of your sin and the sin of the world. I've come to bring ultimate healing of mind and body and soul to all the estheneo, all those who lack strength are ailing and sick. As you know, Jesus' first sermon gave his mission statement. It's in Luke 4, and he says, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, his grace. That's what he's, what he's come to do. And this is a microcosm of playing out of that initial sermon that he gave. Jesus is saying physical ailment is a part of the whole, but the real deal is to put your trust in me, my Father and I are upending the world of Astheneo, of all that doesn't work in this world. And he's saying to him, don't ignore this. Don't just go after the healing because it's a foretaste of the ultimate thing. I don't always do Astheneo in a temporal sense. I only healed you among all the multitude that was there. But I've come to the world to bring an ultimate and eternal healing that will include the physical healing of all who come to me. So after the encounter with Jesus, the man went away and told the Jews, 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is one of the other parts I love so much. Because John is so typical in this. It's so typically John. He doesn't give you everything that's going on in the mind or heart of somebody. He just kind of tells the story. We don't have any clue what the motivation of this guy was to go back to the Jews. Now, there's suspicions. One is that he disregarded Jesus' warning 
And he was like, well, I'm going to rat him out. I'm going to save my own tail in this situation. It was that guy getting the heat off him for his Mishnah uh, uh, law-breaking. But it could have been that he embraced Jesus fully, and he was like overjoyed and overwhelmed. I was like, look, y'all, this is the guy. He told me this in the temple. This is the long-awaited Messiah. And he's overwhelmed with the power and grace that God is doing in the world, that God is at work in the world. And you know what? We just don't know, which I love. We do know how they reacted, though. Verse 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus not only did the work of healing on the Sabbath, he got a guy to break, you know, law 39 of the caring, you know, statute 39 of the Mishnah and told him to do the same. But why? This is where verse 17 comes in. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. The irony of that on the Sabbath, the irony of what he was doing there, the beauty of the kind of uh, adjusting their view of what's going on. This is not undoing the Sabbath completely. It is undoing the mission of 39 for sure. But something beautiful is happening here that is deeply encouraging to us that my father has been working until now, and now I am working. And this last verse, that God is at work, is where I want to spend our time, that he's still working to bring mercy and power and glory and love. God is at work. When we describe our philosophy of ministry, I think you, you, there's a bunch of copies out there. It's the tree thing. We've brought it up several times. Um, the ground and the soil, but I think we have a slide of it. Um, it's the top statement we make about what's happening, what, what, what fuels, what, what nutrients create the beauty of we, what hope to happen in its fruit. The wonder and the richness of the soil. And if you ever want to do a theological, poetic, deep dive into farming, Wendell Berry is your guy. Wendell Berry says, the soil is the great connector of lives. It is the source and destination of all. It is the healer and restorer. It's a resurrector by which disease passes into health, age into youth, death into life. Without proper care for it, the soil, we can have no community because without proper care for it, we have no life. Deep dive, it's wonderful. You, you, I'm, it will nourish and enrich the soil of your own soul if you go down the Wendell Berry path. <clears throat> for years now, I've been preaching at Redeemer about this time of the year before the, our feast, our annual feast, about either its mission or vision. Um, its purpose is so that we would get to the core principles, the, the, the deeper things, the, the things that, um, that connect us before the beautiful frenzy of the fall. And this, this year is no different. I'm going to hang out in the philosophy of ministry. You see there uh, the basic schedule for what we're doing. Um, and that's because we're in a season right now where we need to be grounded. We need to, to make sure we have our foundations right. We've been in a, a significant transition, and, and we want to make sure that the soil is rich. The foundations are right. 
as we bring on another pastor, as we pivot towards a new year. You don't always see what's going on there, but good work happens. The, the ground is a way we talk about um, what we presume God is doing in our lives and in the world. Today's scripture is that. My father is working until now, and I am working. Now, you guys, um, this week has been a little bit busy, but this morning I had, I think, eight different things, maybe ten things that God is working in for us. And then I thought, that's an unbearable thing to list out for anybody listening. And so, like me, you know me well enough now to go, I didn't get it until I got the metaphor. And then once I had the metaphor, I was great. So here's the metaphor. God is at work like a director of a play or uh, orchestrating an event, orchestrating a movie or something like that, executive direction, if you will. And so here's my metaphor. So there you go. God is at work because he orchestrates the scene and the stage of our lives. God has was at work in the setting of this whole thing up. I think that's actually what the editor's note is all about. He's saying, can you believe this, guys? There was this Roman culture and this Jewish culture that was so kind of mystified and kind of almost like um, superstitious and about this place that I, what I'm going to do is that thing that has been developing for so long, I'm going to bring Jesus into that space to show them what real healing is like. He, he, he shows up in particular times and spaces, just like he does for us. And, and he, he, he doesn't reject their longings. He meets them in a more pure and beautiful way. And at best, that pool was like spasmodic. We're waiting for this like thing to bubble up. And at worst, it was an idle dream with full superstition. Don't exactly know how it works, but Jews and Gentiles alike were hoping for it. And he's reorienting our instincts for our longings, like cultural longings, for his purposes in the world. And it's amid the multitude. Jesus shows up and heals just one guy as a teaser of an ultimate thing. God is at work in ways we don't see. For 38 years, that man sat by that pool. God was working the whole time. He didn't know it. Nobody else knew it, but God was at work. We don't know how God is working most of the time. And most people who tell me how God's working, I don't believe them. Especially if they're real sure. He works through extraordinary situations, but also mundane hardships, sometimes 38 years long. And he gives us opportunities to see him put our head on a swivel to just like little pops and pieces that we might see and believe that he is bringing forth and we can taste his mercy, his power. Look, y'all, it's not about our motivations. One of my longest colleagues, a, lead pastor, a leading pastor in our denomination, came to Jesus because he was failing algebra. He met him in a place where his longings were, you know, whatever. And he's like, well, I'll take you. Look, ain't nobody come to Jesus with pure hearts. Now, here's, here's the deal. Once you come to him, he starts messing with your heart. I mean, what do you think? I mean, 
He, he doesn't need your motivations to be perfect. He will get to that later. But he always wants you to know that you come to him by grace and mercy and love, and you come to him for power. I can't imagine how this man of 38 years had been shaped by his disability. And how scary it would have been, as much as it was a joy, to be healed. It's not like he's been practicing a trade for 38 years that he can now enter into. Coming to grips with Jesus is actually harder and more complicated sometimes than even estreno, estreneo. But Jesus doesn't just orchestrate the setting, the stage, he orchestrates the climax. Verse 18, if we kept reading, and I put it in the bulletin, um, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. That's a big deal. In the temple, that's a big, big deal. Now, John's gospel is famously non-chronological. It's kind of thematic. But two chapters ago, Jesus turned over the tables in the temple. It was a deliberate act of protest, of using the temple for profit, of being able to buy God's grace. It was God working to overthrow the injustice of, of paying for mercy. And Jesus is working on that same kind of thing here. He's, he's poking the, at the bear of their self-righteous religious stuff. He's giving them an opportunity to repent by showing them that their religious fervor is misplaced at best and harmful at worst. They care about the way the rules of God work. But they have no eye for how God works. They don't care about the work itself, but their ability to manage it in their own imaginations. And Jesus knew that this would get him killed. And it did. Jesus' work, the climax of his work, slowly building to the climax, where he would use the religious leaders' fervor against themselves. He would endure the crucifixion in order to show them God's grace. He would be trampled over so that he could trample over sin and death. On that cross, the climax of this orchestration, this direction of this play, is on that cross... He says to those very people, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's using all that rage, takes it on into his body, and says, forgive them. They do not know. This is the God at work, into the climax. Even today, he absorbs our rebellion and turns it into love. And lastly, God is at work in the finale. Of course, God's at work to the end. The words that Jesus speaks to the man, get up, in the New Testament, a significant number of the times in the New Testament talks about resurrection, it uses this exact same word. Jesus takes our astroneo, 
and then by the mercy and power of God, gets up from the tomb and walks away out of it, leaving it empty. His work was to empty the tomb and in so doing fulfill all that was needed to bring full strength to us one day. His resurrection is what empowers the grand finale of his his work, the day when all who come to him will have every tear wiped from our eyes and we will be strong, healed. The day when the story of sin and death is over and a new day begins under the reign of grace and life and power. Friends, the Father loves the broken, the astroneo, those without strength. The Spirit is still working among us, calling us. Have your heads on a swivel to see. And it's okay when you can't see. doesn't mean that God's not at work. He's not at work to redeem you from the toes to the crown. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we love you. Help us. Help us believe that you're working in all the belabored long days of pain of our own 38 years. Of our own struggle with sin. Of all of it. We pray in your name. Amen.